0: is a perfect introduction to text we look at today as we turn to the book of Malachi. For the last few months, we've looked at Haggai and Zechariah and now Malachi. And you may remember that these three prophets belong together as the three prophets that spoke to God's people after they returned from exile. And so we are in many ways familiar with the context of Malachi as These prophets have spoken to God's people as they return to Jerusalem and yet face challenges of rebuilding the city. They face the discouragement of their circumstances and they face their ongoing sin. And yet Malachi is also unique. Malachi doesn't give us a specific date like Haggai and Zechariah did, but all of the evidence of the text would point us to Malachi speaking somewhere around 80 years after Haggai and Zechariah. It seems that God's people in Jerusalem were encouraged, and they responded well to the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. They built the temple. They believed God's promises with hope. But then as the years passed, the temple was completed, but its glory didn't match what they had expected. They didn't seem to be flourishing like they had hoped. In fact, economic hardship continued, and they continued to be under the rule of Persia. And so, They waited with expectation for God's words to begin to come true, but they were waiting, in many ways, on their timeline, not God's. And so as one decade passed and then another, a growing cynicism developed about God and His promises. And while Israel did continue their formal religious life, they were focused on themselves, and they began to feel that God was not upholding His end of the deal. But in God's mercy... He sends Malachi to them, the final prophet before the coming of the Messiah, to challenge Israel's assumptions, to reveal the sins that they are blind to, and to defend God's goodness and justice through this series of cross-examinations that we'll see through the book of Malachi. This morning, we begin with chapter 1, and I encourage you to follow along with me as we read this first chapter the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how how have we despised your name? by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of the Lord, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering." For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit that it is that is its food, may be despised. But you say, What a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God, this is your word. Would you use it as you used it in Malachi's day today to challenge our hearts and to bring us back to the love of the Lord and to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Proverbs 18:17, I think, has to be one of the more practically proven Proverbs in our life experience. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. This is Parenting 101, isn't it? Jimmy comes in and says, Johnny's such a mean brother, and, you know, he, he kicked me out of his room. And you say, well, why would he do that? And he says, I have no idea he's just mean. Until, of course, Johnny comes and says, well, I did that because he stole my Legos and ran off with them. And we have the back and forth. And any parent knows that the full story rarely fully exonerates either the plaintiff or the defendant in sibling trials. Well, here in Malachi, Israel too seems quite confident in their innocence and their right to question God's faithfulness until Malachi shows up as God's covenant lawyer to cross-examine them and reveal the true state of their hearts. The book of Malachi begins with an abrupt brevity, an oracle, the word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Not much detail about who Malachi is or what year this is coming in or context, but the opening statement tells us all we need to know. This is God, who has shown up to speak to his people. And God proceeds to lead Israel in this chapter through two rounds of questioning in which he defends his love to his people, in which he challenges Israel's worship of him and declares his honor, the honor of his name. And I want to look at each of these three, and we'll begin with verses 2 through 5, where God defends his love for Israel. And right in this first verse, verse 2, God's love is on display because God knows that Israel is bitter and full of sin. And God has sent Malachi to confront their hearts. But God doesn't begin with the word of challenge. He begins by reaffirming, I have loved you, says the Lord. And this really is the heart of the matter, isn't it? All of Israel's sin, all their apathetic worship, stems from their doubt of God's love. And it shows the crack at the foundation of their covenant relationship with God. And we see this crack immediately in their defensive response to God. God declares, I have loved you. And Israel responds, oh really? How? How have you loved us? And we can fill in the blanks from the context that we know. Where's the glorious temple, God? Where's David's heir on the throne? Where's our victory over our enemies? Where's our flourishing abundance? All these sweet promises that you've given us, God, none of them seem to have happened. So how can you say that you've loved us? But of course, the problem is not with the Lord, but with Israel's heart. Demanding that if God is really a God of love, he would show it by fulfilling his promises on their time, And on their schedule, acting like the deity they expect to have. See, instead of waiting on the God of the universe who judges their hearts, Israel is now putting God on trial. And they have found him wanting by their standards. They become so focused on their current situation that they have forgotten who God is and the grand story that he has been weaving through them as his chosen people. Unless we be quick to condemn Israel, it's so easy for us to fall into the same response, isn't it? We have a set of minimum expectations for God and a minimum expectations for how he will treat us. And when hardship goes beyond that level, we're quick to judge God by our standards, even while we're oblivious to our own sin, our own hearts, our own inability to understand God's purposes. But God comes to Israel and he patiently rehearses his covenant love for them by reminding them of the past and the future. In the past, God has shown his love to Israel by taking them from all the nations of the earth to be his people. God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? And yet I have loved Jacob and not Esau. Moses reminded Israel in Deuteronomy 4 the unique blessing that God had given to Israel. He said, for what great nation is there who has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call on him? And how? Why? Why is God so near to Israel? Why did God call Israel to be his people? Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? God says in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people. It was because the Lord loves you and is keeping that oath that he swore to your fathers. See, in the past, Israel needs only look back and see that God has loved Israel, has chosen them and called them and made them his people, drawing them into relationship with himself, unlike any other nation. God has also shown his love to Israel through his promises of the future, though. He has promised Israel a glorious future of salvation. That is not the case if we go back and compare Esau once again. Edom was the country descended from Esau. And Edom cheered when Israel was defeated and taken into exile. But then Edom was also laid to waste. And while Edom may claim that it will rebuild itself like Israel has done, the Lord denies that effort. Whereas God tells Israel, you will be rebuilt, you will have a future of glory to Edom, he says, if you try to rebuild, I will frustrate that effort, for God's judgment on that nation is final. Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. His purposes will come to pass throughout the world, in in Israel and without, and that includes destruction for Edom, and yet hope for Israel. And so the Lord challenges Israel and says, how could they question God's love when their past and their future are determined by God's unmerited, undeserved, overflowing love? Yes, current circumstances are challenging. Yes, though, even these current circumstances are part of God's sovereign plan to refine His sinful people. They are part of His love for His people, not a denial of it. And Israel only needs to compare their past and their future to their relatives from Edom to remember this. For us, too, it's easy for us to believe sometimes that God has forfeited His claim as a loving God because of the suffering we face. But when we're tempted to think that, we, too, need to remember the past and the future. The past when God has sent His own Son through death itself to save us and to make us His own in the future in which God promises to wipe away every tear from our eyes and welcome us into eternal fellowship with Him forever. As one commentator puts it, if we assess God's love by how He meets my needs and my demands, then our greedy hearts will always find Him wanting. But if we assess God's love by His mercy in saving us in Christ from the death the judgment and hell that our actions and our nature deserved, then we will constantly marvel at his amazing love and his amazing grace. Well, that's cross-examination number one, and it highlights the heart of the matter, that Israel had ceased to believe that God loved him, and that shaped their worship of him. But God moves on to challenge Israel's worship directly in verses 6 through 10. Look on to those verses. God begins by saying, A son honors his father, a servant fears his master. If I'm a father, where is my honor? If I'm a master, where is my fear, O oh, priests who despise my name? We're going to look with more detail at these themes of fear and honor next week. But God's question reminds Israel of who he is. He is their God and their Lord. He's their creator and their father, the one who brought them into existence and who has made them his own. And as such, he is worthy of honor and worship, of fear and obedience. But instead, the people, and not just the people, but even the priests, the ones who should have been guarding his honor and glory, have despised his name. But again, Israel responds with a measure of disbelief. What? How have we despised your name? How have we done that? See, Israel is again blind to its sins. They felt abandoned by God in some ways. Yet they continued to go through the motions of religious duties and sacrifices. And so you can hear in Israel the assumption that God would be impressed by the fact that they were staying consistent in their sacrifices and religious rituals, even while they felt God was dealing them a raw hand. But they missed the fact, the fact that God had told them over and over again that true worship involves honor, fear, joy, giving glory to the God they love and revere. True worship is not a matter of showing up and getting your participation award. True worship is not a matter of getting the sticker that I sacrificed today. And God exposes their spiritual apathy and their failure to honor Him by pointing to their sacrifices. See, if you were to turn back to Leviticus 22, you would read that God had required sacrifices to be without blemish. Only a spotless lamb was a worthy sacrifice for the Lord of lords. And yet now, Israel is offering animals that are blind, are lame, are sick. Israel now has agreed to let the Lord have what they don't need or can't use rather than honoring him with the best of what they had. And God asked incisively, why don't you try taking that pathetic, sick lamb as a gift to your governor and see if he honors you for that. You know he won't. And if your governor won't accept this lamb, how dare we give it as a gift to the God of heaven? At some point, our actions reveal our hearts. I was remembering as I read this, uh, a pastor who told the story of one Christmas when he forgot to get a Christmas present for his wife. And he realized that he had forgotten to get a present for his wife after the Christmas Eve service as he was driving home at 10 o'clock on Christmas Eve. And so he began to drive around, but the only place open was the 7-Eleven gas station. And so he settled for a couple of Hershey chocolate bars as his wife's Christmas present. Now, perhaps that marriage can uh, be saved through one bad Christmas. Maybe we can forgive uh, one mistake. But if this happened year after year, Christmas after Christmas, at some point, your actions begin to declare something. And Israel's sacrifices were declaring something. Israel's sacrifices, remember, were to be the thing that cleansed them from sin. But how could they be cleansed before a holy God by a diseased lamb? The sacrifices were to offer thanks and praise to the God of heaven, to honor his name. But how could a lame animal be an expression of honor and praise? See, these very sacrifices, which were supposed to glorify God, had become the prime example of how little Israel cared about God compared to themselves. And it got worse. It's not just the sacrifices But these bad sacrifices began to cheapen the whole system as Israel undermined their worship. See, the priests who were to eat the meat of the sacrifices, they were to offer the best portions of the lamb to the Lord, and they were to eat what was left as their food. But you see in verses 12 to 13 that the priests are beginning to complain and despise the food that they're getting, leading them to feel that the whole system which was God's means of forgiveness and worship, was nothing but a burden. So that in verse 13, they say, what a weariness this is. We imagine the system of God's blessing, a weariness. And they snort at it, says the Lord. What a great word to describe the attitude of Israel's heart. And so God responds by expressing the yearning of his heart. Oh, that someone would step up and slam the doors of the temple shut so that someone would stop this disgusting ritual. You see that in verse 10. He longs that this system of worship would be stopped because instead of declaring God's glory day after day, Israel was now declaring to anyone who would pay attention that God was unworthy of the things of value that they had. These two examinations, of course, belong together, don't they? True worship always flows from hearts overwhelmed by the love and majesty of God. And where a people is no longer overwhelmed by the goodness and the greatness of God, their worship will become routine at best, and more often a regular declaration that God is no longer the priority in my heart. And so God ends this passage with a declaration aimed to bring Israel back to reality. To the reality that the God who has loved them and still loves them is none other than the King of Kings, who will receive resounding choruses of praise from every nation of the world. You see in verse 11 this wonderful declaration of the glory of God For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And you hear it again in verse 14 For I am a great king, declares the Lord and my name will be feared among the nations. That is the declaration of who God is. That is the declaration of the glory that God will receive because of who he is. And all of our worship, all of our sacrifices, all of our obedience, all of our efforts and missions, everything we do is fueled only by a zeal for the great glory of the name of the Lord, and the future certainty that the glory of the Lord will be declared and magnified from the rising of its sun to its setting. If anything less than a zeal for the glory of God is at work in our hearts, then all of our efforts of worship and obedience and missions will begin to show their poverty. See, the Lord has shown his greatness to the world again and again. You remember the book of Exodus. The Lord saves Israel from Egypt, and what happens? All the nations tremble before Him when they see the strong hand of the Lord. God now has sent His Son Jesus and raised Him from the dead and exalted Him to the right hand of heaven's throne, and His greatness is evident to many. But the day is still coming when myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands And Revelation 5 says, every creature in heaven and on earth and under earth will cry out to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And that coming day, that glory that the Lord deserves and will receive defines and drives our worship as His people. How often our inconsistency and and tired offering of worship fails to match who God is. And so God sends Malachi to call Israel and also us to stand in joyful awe of the name of the Lord and to join our hearts and our voices to praise Him who will be worshipped from the rising of the sun to its setting. And so we see the logic of this passage where God begins by reaffirming his love for Israel and calling them to remember his love. And then he challenges their worship, exposing their poor view of him before he reminds Israel of who he is, recalling them to his glory. Well, in our final minutes, I want to spend a few minutes considering two applications for us from this cross-examination of Israel's worship. First, this passage asks us, does our view of God, does our attitude towards God, whether day by day in our lives or, or together in our corporate worship, does our view of God and attitude toward God match the reality of who He is? Do our hearts match the reality that will soon be revealed of God and of the Lamb and their all consuming glory? Because it's so easy for the church to domesticate God and to think of him as perhaps a helpful deity who loves us rather than to preserve his majesty. Charles Misner was a scientist. He was a scientist who walked in the steps of Einstein and specialized in the theory of general relativity. And Misner indicted the church. Listen to his words. He said, "...the design of the universe is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty by looking at the universe." Than these preachers had ever imagined. They were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that Einstein simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have the proper respect for the author of the universe. These are the words of a scientist who, to the best of our knowledge, was not a believer. And if he, by looking at the heavens, could indict The church and even its preachers, and say that the words they spoke were blasphemous to God for their proper, for lacking proper awe. How much worse if the church can not only look at the heavens, but could read in God's word how God had proclaimed his own glory. How much worse if they had seen God's glory enter the world and bring about their salvation. How much worse if the book of Revelation had given them a glimpse of his coming glory and God's people still talk too lightly of the majesty of heaven. See, he is high. He is exalted. He is worthy of all of our praise. And our first application is that our hearts and our attitudes much worship God for who he is. And second, perhaps we should ask this question, how will we know if we have too cheap a view of God or not? And this passage tells us, we will know by the type of offerings we bring. Do we bring our best? Do we bring the first fruits, the things of value in our offering to God? Or do we offer what's left to fulfill an obligation once we've satisfied the rest of our interests and desires? And maybe I could suggest that I think there are at least three ways that we as a church today are tempted to offer lame leftovers in our sacrifices. First, our tithes are part of our offering to the Lord. Now Malachi is going to come back to the subject of tithing in chapter 3, but for now we should ask, are we offering the first, the best of what we have to the Lord as one who is worthy of all of our honor and all of our praise? Or do we wait until our budgets are met, our Netflix subscription and smartphone bills are covered, and the vacation down payment is paid, and then we see what's left to give to the Lord? Maybe we should use Malachi's logic. Would the federal government accept our approach to paying our taxes that we often take to tithing to the Lord? And if not, how dare we think it is sufficient for the glory of the name of God? Second, our time and our priorities are part of how we worship God. One commentator writes this, he said, we have many responsibilities and our duty to the God is often far down the list. And in our culture, it seems it is harder for us to find room for God in our lives and so harder for us to find room for the word of the Lord in our lives. Yet even this way of speaking exposes the problem for how dare we think or talk of making room for God, the Lord. The real question is, is there room for us in God's universe? And when we realize that there is room for us in God's universe, precisely because He, the God of heaven, has gone to the cross in our place to take our sins, and has risen again to give us life in His presence, how can we talk about trying to find room for Him in our life? How can He not be the dominant thought, the dominant priority, aim, and desire of our hearts and our lives? Well, third, Paul tells us in Romans 12 that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. In other words, according to Paul, the sacrifices we give to God are sacrificing our desires, sacrificing our bodies in order to give up sin and obey God in holiness. That is what proclaims the glory of God to a watching world, that we would give up our sins and our desires in order to honor Him in holiness. Maybe that means sacrificing sexual fulfillment to live in purity before Christ. Maybe there are some here today who may be sacrificing pursuing an identity or desires that the world encourages you to affirm, but that God's word says no to. Maybe it means sacrificing a larger house or pleasures. Maybe it means sacrificing our anger or our rights to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation for the sake of the body of Christ. We could spell out many others. But the danger, here's the danger. The danger is that we are not sacrificing these things and we still think we're just fine because we believe in God and show up in church and pray. But Israel still believed in God. They still offered regular sacrifices at the temple and they were shocked when God showed up and condemned them and said that it would be better if they didn't try to worship at all than if they were to pretend to honor him and fail to offer sacrifices worthy of his honor. And we're just as self-deceived, aren't we? And our only hope is to hold our lives up to God's word and to present our bodies as living sacrifices, saying no to sinful desires in order to be holy and acceptable to him, which is our spiritual worship. Well, These are just three. I'm sure we could talk about more. But as we come to an end, one author calls this chapter an autopsy of dead religion. Maybe we find ourselves revealed by this autopsy this morning. If so, Jesus stands ready to save. Jesus calls us to return through faith in Him to a great Savior and a great God. The way for us to return to genuine, zealous worship of the Lord of hosts is to come and find in Jesus the Savior that we need, the Savior who has always loved us, who has died to take our sin and risen to give us life. And it is His love, it is His risen majesty that will fuel our passion to offer proper worship for the glory of His name. Let's pray. Oh God, Your name is great And we confess that our thoughts of you are not great enough. It is so easy for us to demand our expectations or to assume how we think you ought to act or to have a small view of you. And yet here you stand as the God of gods, a great King whose glory will be proclaimed from the rising of the sun to its setting. And you stand not only as the great King, but also our great Savior who has entered the world and gone to the cross for us and risen again for our salvation. And so, Father, would you stir in our hearts now in this week a great zeal and passion to give you the glory your name deserves. And would that show up in our worship, in our sacrifices, in our lives lived for your glory and holiness before you. And we pray that as we do so, our lives would be declaring your name and its greatness and glory to all those around us. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.